The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Neath, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the psychoanalyst and writer Adam Phillips, whose new book, which may strike a chord with many of us still crawling to the end of dry January, is called On Giving Up. Now, Adam, to start with, can you give our, our readers a bit of a sense of what the what the book is, your angle of attack? Because it sort of feels to me like a sort of series of linked essays that sort of circle around a theme. Is that how to read it? Yes, I think it is. I mean, the essays were not originally conceived of as a coherent book, but preoccupations clearly recur as one writes. I mean, the basic idea, which is discussed a bit in the beginning of the book, is the ambiguity of this phrase giving up, which on the one hand, you know, when we give things up, we believe we can change. When we give up, we believe we can't change. And so the relationship between actually all these internal resolutions about things that we should give up in order to get the lives we want, which of course is a very powerful continual demand, so to speak, internally and externally, coupled with, I think, something which is around always, I think, which is the fear and the wish to actually give up. And that it's as though, it seems to me, and again, I don't know who the we is that I'm talking about, but I think in the kind of culture that we live in, we are encouraged to believe, almost as a, a tenet of religious faith, that life is intrinsically and always and fundamentally worth living. And it would seem to me there are situations or predicaments where people actually find it's torture to go on living. And I think they should be free then to kill themselves. So I think the book, on the one hand, is saying we need to be able to think and talk about this differently. And we also need to think about what sacrifice actually entails and why we value it. Yes, this idea, you mentioned a sort of religious thing. I was interested in you saying, it's just in a parenthesis early on, you say when we're giving, we're always giving up as a phrasal verb. We're never giving down. There's a sort of sense of a kind of offering. And as though in the phrase giving up, the one of the possible implications is that we're giving something up to a higher authority. And that in some ways, it's, I mean, this is a crude way of putting it, but it's like a deal. I give something up to the higher authorities and they then help me get the life I want. Well, that is one of the, the things that seems you, you either say or imply about the notion of giving things up and renunciation. I mean, in your, you know, your first, I giving things up rather than giving up on life sense. But there are sort of, it's associated both with the idea of an exchange and also that there is, which seems a little counterintuitive, that, that there is pleasure or some sort of idea of pleasure associated with removing things from our life rather than adding them. Thing. Well, I think that there can be. I mean, if, for example, I remove alcohol from my life or drugs from my life, it would seem to me there's the potential for more pleasure in life. I could say, I'm not saying this is true of everybody all the time, but one of the things that a lot of addictions are, are a flight from pleasure. So people fob themselves off with an addiction which organises what they think they want. So it's like an, an, a very militant, active narrowing of the mind. So I think that there is a sense in which one is wishfully involved in an exchange. If I give up eating chocolate, 
I will lose weight and feel healthier and lighter. But there is an implied exchange as though it's a kind of deal. So the question is always going to be in any sacrifice. And if I sacrifice this, what will I get back? So on the one hand, it's a deferred pleasure. I'm waiting for the return on my investment, so to speak. On the other hand, there's another pleasure, which is one that I think is fairly familiar in psychoanalysis, which is the pleasure of mastering a desire. So I love chocolate. It's extremely pleasurable to me. But what I love more is my capacity or my picture of myself as someone who can give up things that I really love, as if to say, I'm not going to be tyrannized by an appetite. As if, like Kate Moss said, I think, you know, nothing tastes as good as thin feels. Yeah. I'm very interested also you, you say when talking about addiction that you it's a flight from pleasure. Because I think most people who are or have experienced addiction would describe it to themselves as either an, an attempt to obtain pleasure, maybe the initial pleasure of a drug which, you know, tolerance and and all the consequences that come with it make less and less pleasurable as time goes on, or a flight from pain. Yeah, yeah. That And both those things must be true. And it's obviously tricky here to generalise, because I wouldn't want to obviously be speaking above all addicts and all addictions. But one possible generalisation here is that the question always is, what's the addiction self-cure for? Well, it may be a self-cure for, for example... Uh, having been dependent on somebody who was extremely unreliable, let's say. So I need to get something that I can control and rely on. The other element of this that seems to me prominent is that there's a, for some people, and for some people at different times of their lives, an urgent need to simplify themselves, that because they can't bear the complexity of their own minds or the complexity of contested desires inside them, it's as though there's the attempt to narrow it. So instead of me thinking about all my proliferating wants and needs, I think what I want is a cigarette. And then that becomes the organiser of my desire, of my appetite. And there's a relief in that. But is that a metonymy? Yes. But, but there's also, of course, a self-starvation. Because whatever I'm addicted to will not nourish me. And I know that. It's your sense that the contortions and, and paradoxes of you know, appetite that you describe and circle in this book are, as it were, sempiternal human truths? Or is your sense that there's a sort of cultural change that, that, for instance, you know, in some societies historically where, I don't know, maybe excess has been more or less available, our attitudes to renunciation are different? I mean, do you, is this a one-size-fits-all theory? No, it isn't. And I, I couldn't believe any of those. And it couldn't be universalised. All I can talk about is really a very small group of people, which are the, the, obviously the people I've met and something of the culture I've grown up in. From my point of view, which comes out of a, a child psychotic training, the fundamental problem, so to speak, and I would say this for everybody, but it would have to be underwritten by saying, I can't make comments about everybody, it's ridiculous. But I would say now, everybody begins being dependent on their mother or their caretaker. And... What gradually dawns on people is that they can't control the object that they need. And that is going to be then a fundamental problem. Now, reactive to that, I can either retreat and pretend to myself I don't need anything or anybody, or I can be extremely tyrannical and try and control the people that I need. But 
from my sense of things professionally, everything depends upon what the earliest experiences of dependence were like. You know, if I had a, broadly speaking, more or less reliable mother, let's say, then appetite will not be a major conflict for me. If I've had a depressed mother or a tantalising mother or an anxious mother or an overly self-preoccupied mother, then it's going to be more complicated. But of course, all our mothers were real people and they were as complicated as anybody else. And so the trouble with this model is that it's implicitly potentially mother-blaming. It says, if you're not going to be a good mother to me, you're going to ruin my life. And this seems to me to be just obviously misogynistic and too limiting. So all I would really say is that a lot depends on early mothering, but it influences everything, but it determines nothing. One of the things that, I mean, stop me, we're having this conversation relatively late in the evening, and I'd imagined, given how prolific you are as a writer, that you didn't do a great deal of clinical practice. And actually, the reason we're having this conversation in the evening is because you said, I'm terribly sorry, I've got, I'm talking to people for eight or nine or 10 hours today. Um, it's obviously still a huge part of what you do. Can I ask how directly your experience of the individual's with whom you are conducting psychoanalysis, kind of informs your more theoretical work? I think it must do, but it's not directly causal, if you see what I mean. I mean, I don't any longer, I did briefly to begin with, but I don't write about the people that I see because I believe it is an entirely private practice, so to speak. I'm sure that the clinical work I do has a very powerful effect on me. How could it not? And it then... It informs the writing without causing it. That's really all I can say, because what I'm aware of is I do clinical work five days a week or four days a week sometimes, and when I sit down to write, it's as though the writing comes from another part of myself. So I don't sit down and write about the work I do, but the work I do is integral to what I write about. And I'm interested also in a wider sense in how much experience and clinical experience and, and, you know, real-life people informs, if you like, the theories of psychoanalysis. I mean, I, you know, I've seen you, you're on record, I think, as being quite sceptical about the idea that it needs to establish itself as an empirical science. And I had, actually, a couple of years ago, Michael Bork-Jakobsen talking about his book in which he said, look, you know, Freud was obviously extraordinarily British and extraordinarily influential, but a lot of the case studies on which he based his theories, he kind of slightly falsified or you know, fiddled around with, and that actually his clinical practice was, I mean, fraudulence, too strong a word, but he definitely wasn't, you know, this, therefore that. Yeah. Well, the risk is that a psychoanalyst foists on the patients their theories so that it's as though the patient comes along and is treated in the sense that they will be understood in the language that either psychoanalysts have learned. So, for example, I might have a very... I don't, but I could have a very strong idea of what a cure is. And I could do everything within my power to make this happen. Or I could find out what, from the patient's point of view, would be a cure for them. Now, I'm interested in that so that I think of the theories as informing fictions and useful guidelines. But I'm not wanting to get the patient to fit in with the things I already know, because obviously every person is genetically and, and historically unique. 
and, and specifically individual. doesn't mean we don't have lots in common with other people, but we also are very specific and idiosyncratic. And the kind of psychoanalysis that I believe in addresses the singularity of any given individual. And ideally, it produces a sort of setting in which these things can be discussed. So if I start, as it were, trying to persuade you of something about yourself, you will, I hope, feel free to argue with me in the best sense. So that everything is available to be discussed. It's ideally an anti-dogmatic, anti-fundamentalist conversation. And it, it does it remain, which seems to be a theme that haunts your book, the question of what you're actually doing when you're doing psychoanalysis. It seems to be an open question itself. I mean, do you have a, I mean, you've said it's anti-dogmatic, it's about questions, it's about questioning the questions. I mean, you've got a very dialectical and um, paradoxical cast of mind, it seems to me, in these essays, you're sort of very often saying, well, this this can be one thing, but it's also its opposite, you know, as you discussed in the in our opening moments. Do you feel you know what you're doing when you're doing psychoanalysis? Yes, I do. I mean, I've done it for a long time. And I don't mean by that I... I understand what everything means and I can, as it were, make people better or anything like that. You acquire a skill over time. And I do feel I've got a sense of what I'm doing. The psychoanalysis that I believe in is inflected by or influenced by American pragmatism. So for me, for the first question is, well, what, what from the patient's point of view are they suffering from? What, as it were, are the problems they want to solve? And those things are addressed. And it, it tends to devolve into the question of how to work out with somebody what actually is the life they want and whether they have the wherewithal to get it. Not as in a supermarket, but broadly speaking, you know, how do you want to live? What kind of person do you want to be? And what kind of person do you feel yourself to be? But, or and, what psychoanalysis adds into the equation, if you like, is the difficulty of knowing what one wants. Because, of course, in the consumer capitalist culture, it appears to be the case that, of course, we know what we want. The only question is whether we can get it. Well, psychoanalysis says, no, actually, wanting is one of the most conflicted things we ever do. And that actually knowing what you want could be one of the most defensive things you ever do. Because wanting is actually complicated and conflicted. And we have diverse wants. So what a psychoanalysis can help you do is begin to get a sense of, A, what your wants might be and what your anxieties about your wanting are. So you sort of bear the device a little more. Yes, and what goes along with that, of course, is having a sense of what your desires may or may not be. I'm very interested in, in one distinction you make quite early in the book, in relation to wanting, that there are sort of essentialists and experimentalists as sort of two we'd quite say categories of person, but can you explain that distinction and how it affects what we're talking about? If we just take a, a very crude Freudian view, and Freud doesn't quite believe this, but let's imagine Freud says to us, fundamentally, we're sexual creatures. It is our essence to be sexually desiring creatures. So if we were to accept that, then we'd simply have to work out what the consequences of that are in our lives. Whereas if one takes a, a, an American pragmatist view of essentialism, we're not saying there are essentials, so to speak. We're saying something more experimental, which is, I could say to you, if we take it that we're fundamentally sexual creatures, then what are the consequences of that? What kind of lives do we get if we live as though that's true? So all these ideas about who we really are 
are experiments rather than facts. If I live as if I'm fundamentally selfish, greedy and cruel, and it's as though that's the basic model, let me take an original sin model, well then lots and lots and lots of people have grown up believing they're fundamentally bad. This would seem to me tyrannical and unfounded. But what does seem to me to be more interesting if we're going to follow that line is to say, let's imagine we are extremely cruel and selfish creatures. What kind of lives does that make possible? Or what can we then want in the light of that? Or what's possible if that's true? Not it is true, so what do we do now? But if it's true, what are the consequences? Another distinction you make it is between different sorts of attention, which... Again, I think this in your introduction, you talk about how, which seems to bear on this idea of um, what sort of pleasure in life you can take, uh, narrow attention and wide attention. How does that distinction work? As, and I'm wondering how much that maps onto what we know now about neuroscience. I don't know about neuroscience myself, so I can't address that bit of it. Narrow attention is the attention we give when we want something. It's like, uh, this is an exaggeration, but it's a bit like predatory attention. So narrow attention says, the only game in town now is what are we going to have for supper? What do we want? Wide-angled attention assumes we don't know what we want, and actually it's, it may not be as purposive as we think it is. So uh, the, the, the person who invented this distinction is a psychoanalyst called Marin Milner. And she, I think, was wanted to get away from the idea that we're purpose and desire driven. So in wide attention, it's as though, and it's in a way, it's quite a visual image, which is we look more broadly. We don't over-focus. We don't over-organize our attention, which ideally makes us more receptive. So if I go into a field and look at a tree in the field, I'll see the tree. If I look at the whole field, I'll see all sorts of things. And I may see other things that I didn't know I was interested in. So wide attention is more receptive and we allow more to have more of an effect on us. In narrow attention, I know what I want and I've got to get it. Does this map on at all, I mean, since you work so much in the field of child developmental psychology, Alison Gopnik's ideas about lantern consciousness being, you know, characteristic that the children infants have this extraordinarily sort of wide, unfocused intake, and that for good adaptive reasons, as they become adults, you know, you get much more purposive and you into sort of flow and concentration. And, you know, you see something orange and you think that's a tiger and you get the hell out of Dodge rather than marvelling at every individual flow. Are those the sorts of... Yes, that's exactly it. That, and and yeah. in a way, I suppose, ideally you would say developmentally you wouldn't go from that early wide attention to narrow attention. You'd have access to both forms of attention. They have different functions. They work differently in different areas of one's life. And the risk would be that in a culture that is organized around competition, what will be encouraged will be focused attention. Because the idea is we have projects that we must fulfill, desires we must gratify, wants that have to be satisfied. Well, that's one picture of who we might be. But in another picture of who we might be, we may not actually know. We may not know what might strike us or who we might love or like or be attracted to. So it's about being able to relinquish an omniscient part of oneself. 
does that also map on? I'm sorry, but your, your book says so, so suggestive. It makes me think, oh, how about, does that compare to that or map onto that? Does that rhyme to you at all with the sort of, I mean, it's kind of vulgarly expressed, but kind of Buddhist ideas of a freedom from that narrow attention, a constant distraction of wanting, being itself a kind of form of religious. Yes, it would, it would make sense. I mean, I'm, as it were, a tourist when it comes to Buddhism. I really don't know about it. I've read books about it, but I don't know it. And obviously, I, I didn't grow up in that world. But it seems to me it's not surprising that lots of cultures have had ideas that overlap with this. That on the one hand, there's a self driven by need, an appetite, an instinct, and then there's something else about us. And the risk is that the instinctual or needy part of ourselves becomes a kind of internal tyranny. It produces, as it were, a fascist state of mind. And the alternative is to imagine democratic state of mind in which there are rival unconciliated claims and there are lots of demands on our attention. And actually, we're sampling the world rather than knowing what we want from it. That fascist state of mind point, which you, you elaborate a little in one of the early essays, I mean, it's not how much you feel, I mean, well, you were using a metaphor there, but you feel that what you describe has implications for politics. I mean, do you see psychoanalysis as a separate zone or can you psychoanalyze a people? If you well, like? I think you can't psychoanalyze a people. And I think that psychoanalysts have been very grandiose in their belief that their ideas can explain political life or social life. They may be useful, but I don't think there's a straightforward transcription here. And I suppose the only question is, you put these ideas into circulation and you see which ideas may be of use to people politically. You know, it's hard to know. It seems to me that the fascist state of mind idea is actually importing something from politics into a way of seeing a sort of internal world or a person. That is to say, not that a fascist state of mind necessarily produces a fascist person. It might do. But differently to say, we may have a relationship to ourself which is akin to fascism, i.e. extremely coercive and bullying and narrow-minded and unsympathetic and actually based on ideas of purity and danger. So really based on what I have to get rid of to be the person I believe myself to be. And not only do I have to get rid of these parts of myself, I have to abolish them, I have to kill them. And is that so that's sort of going back to giving up like almost self-exterminatory instinct, that idea that you you fear so much what you want that you really go too far in, in repressing it. Yes, and not only that, but in all, in the doing of that, one is simply treating other people as though they are simply there for one's own gratification, as opposed to individuals in their own right. So it dispels the idea of collaboration. It assumes that um, because people are a danger to each other, we have to find a way of controlling people, as opposed to thinking maybe the best lives we can make are collaborative. Now, a flip side of that, that, that you know, extremely repressive internal policeman, as it were, comes up in the essay later in the book, where you talk about what I think called the pleasures of censorship. And, and I'd love you to ex explain this better, but to paraphrase for the listeners, I think you're essentially saying that you know, we cannot exist as social beings or even, you know, as humans if we don't, to some extent, censor and control our desires. But our internal censor, in a way, is actually rather a caring, tending creature, or can be, in as much as it sort of pays tribute to those desires while withholding them and allowing them to emerge in dreams and so forth. Is that roughly what you're getting at? 
Yes, absolutely. And I think the thing I'm promoting in that essay, insofar as there is something being promoted, is the idea that a censor could be a very useful internal interlocutor. That instead of assuming that a censor is only and unequivocally repressive, we could think that it's possible to imagine an internal censor that is actually interested in one's safety. So it's not trying to simply repress and destroy our desires. It might be able to help us make them more viable in the world. And of course, we know that lots of great poetry has been written in extremely over-censored regimes, which isn't to say, great, we should have more over-censorship in our cultures. But what it is to say is that people have been amazingly inventive and imaginative and creative faced with extreme censorship. So not to say censorship brings out the best in everybody, because it clearly it doesn't, but it can sometimes. And so in a way, the essay is suggesting that we need to think about what kind of internal censorship we want, or what kind of internal censorship might bring out the best in us. I mean, is, is that like a sort of extreme version of the, you know, say, Ulipolian idea, or even when you're writing a sonnet, that you you find a constraint, and it's the constraint that makes the artwork. Exactly. And you wouldn't think of, say, the, a form like the sonnet as being, as it were, censorship. You'd think it would, be, it would be about form. Well, ideally, the censor is a kind of formalist. He or she, through the rules they impose, make things possible. And, I mean, with that tips on to think that you, you've got a sort of double track in your public life, in that you are a psychoanalyst, but you're also a literary critic. Can I ask how do those two things relate? I mean, you you dip frequently into literary reference in this book. You know, we get a lot. Of, we talk about Kafka, about Mann, about Musil, um, and and even Freud himself was very literary. Is there a read across on the two things? No, there definitely is. I mean, I wasn't a child who was forever reading and writing stories or any of that stuff. But when I went to school, secondary school. I had a kind of something akin to a conversion experience. I had, like lots of people had, a very inspiring English teacher. And so then for me as an adolescent, literature became the thing. And I studied literature at university. And that was my initial and abiding sort of passion and interest. And then I started reading psychoanalysis quite late in the day. And I was interested in psychoanalysts as writers to begin with. There was a kind of overlapping cultural conversation between so-called literature and psychoanalysis, that these two forms of writing were doing comparable and overlapping things. And so for me, psychoanalysis has always been a part of literature. The difference is, of course, it's also a clinical practice. So when you read a psychoanalytic text, it's not exactly a how-to book, but it has an eye on the potential for practice, for clinical practice. Whereas it's not that literature has no eye on the practical, but literature isn't there only telling us what to do and how to live. Although it's partly doing that, I think. Certainly the literature that I valued is about that. It's about working out how to live. And do you think literature and psychoanalysis make different categories of truth claim? Yes, I do. I mean, the literature is, to me, infinitely more interesting than psychoanalysis as writing, because you can see that psychoanalysis has a very, very narrow picture of what a person is. Whereas if you think this, of the sheer range and scale of tones and voices and ideas and so on in what's loosely called literature, it's infinite, it's enormous. So that I think psychoanalysis 
is relatively speaking narrow, but I think it's useful. It was interesting. You, you make the point, which is quite a bold one, that you say the tragic heroes, the defining quality of the tragic hero is that they won't give up. And that's what brings them down. And I, I found myself instantly thinking, there must be exceptions to this. There must be. <laughs> and, 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 there, and there may be. And if you could think of them, it would be good. <laughs> but, but my thought, I think, in this is that tragic heroes are people who can't reflect on themselves. They can't have a second thought. And in that sense, they're in a fascist state of mind. They are determined to be right. And in this inability to change their minds, they create havoc. Because what they, they can only have accomplices and people who collude with them. They can't have genuine conversations with anybody. And in that sense, they're simply living in their own minds. No, this is a, a sort of monomania. Now, you do also use Man and Musil as ways of understanding the historical and cultural moment, the kind of deep kind of end of empire anxiety in the first half of the 20th century, out of which psychoanalysis came out. And, and you know, you also point to the Jewishness of Freud and of Kafka. How much does the fact that psychoanalysis kind of had to emerge in that particular moment shape its field? I mean, because obviously it seems to make very general claims, but it comes out of a really specific yeah, cultural I moment. I mean, I think it's, it's entirely shaped by its cultural and historical moment. It is a period piece. And it was to address all sorts of cultural conflicts that were then present and prevalent. It's very important, I think, that it's not read ahistorically, or as though it's some kind of universalizing ahistorical account of human nature. It's actually a story about human nature in a very specific culture at a very specific moment. So, you know, it's clearly not incidental that one of the things Psychic Freud and some of his followers were virtually obsessed by was destructiveness, was simply our capacity to be aggressive and cruel and, and radically destructive, not just a bit nasty. Well, this is obviously the aftershock of the First and Second World War which it seems to me changed everything. And it compelled people to revalue, so to speak, or reconsider what they thought a person was. If people were capable of doing this to each other, what are we like? Well, psychoanalysis was part of that cultural conversation. And you know, it's not incidental that some of the early psychoanalysts did a lot of work with people who were shell-shocked or casualties of the First World War. Yeah. You've said, you know, it comes out of a historical moment. It doesn't, you know, it mustn't be read ahistorically or transhistorically. How much were its earliest luminaries aware of that? I mean, Jung, I would have thought, you have a, you say there's this pivotal moment at the Munich Congress where he and Freud face off and, and Jung, you know, <laughs> the young contender takes the champion's belt. But Jung seems to have been someone who did think there were these great, deep patterns that went beyond history. Would Freud, I mean, he had a different set of ideas, but would he have seen his ideas as being transhistorical in the same way? Or do you think there was a bit of self-knowledge No, I, I think they both did. I think they both believed they were telling us the truth about human nature, that they discovered the truth about people. They weren't saying, this could be true about people now. They said, this is what we are actually like. And psychoanalysis, not only psychoanalysis, has been hampered by these 
extremely dogmatic generalizations. Psychonic stories should begin with, I wonder if X, what do you think? As opposed to, life is all about sex, or life's all about dependence, or life's all about cruelty. These are preposterous, grandiose, omniscient remarks. But has the establishment since then taken this on board, do you feel? Or is there a, there a war being waged between, if you like, sort of old school Freudians who do think these are transhistoric claims about human nature and the more kind of questioning, sceptical, paradoxical, self-reflecting school, which I guess you would you know, seek to represent? Fortunately, I don't know anything about the establishment, but my sense is that psychoanalysis post-Second World War evolved in lots of different directions and that therefore there are lots of different voices in it. I'm sure there are still dogmatic people who believe they think and know the truth about human nature. I also know that there are people who just don't want to think like that, who actually see psychoanalysis as opening up possibilities of conversation that have hitherto been unthought of. You know, it's a very extraordinary thing to suggest that two people could go into a room together and one of them could say, if they could, whatever came into their minds. It's not, it seems to me that somebody should say, look, if you really want to understand yourself, you need to go to psychoanalysis and free associate. Somebody should say, if you're curious or desperate, see what happens when you go and see this person and you try and say whatever comes into your mind. Try it out. It's an experiment. It may be a total waste of time and money, or it could change your life. Find out. Extraordinary. I was also going to ask, I know you've done a lot of child development stuff, and you've done a lot of work on Lacan. Lacan, to most of us, is practically impenetrable. It's a sort of joke not understanding Lacan. Is he of interest to you because of the riddling literary quality of him? What's the appeal of him for, for those of us who read the mirror stage and boggled. I really can't stand sort of manager and esoteric intelligence. That really doesn't appeal to me at all. But I think with Lacan, things are said in passing or things are said occasionally that are very, very striking. So I don't read him to try and, as it were, join the cult or to learn to speak the language. That is of no interest to me. What is interesting is to read these texts if, if they appeal to me, and some of them do, some of it's very boring to me, but every so often something is said that is very striking. And it seems to me anybody who's interested in psychoanalysis couldn't help but be interested in something about Lacan without feeling that they've got to join the cult or speak the language. And I think that people should be very wary of exclusive, exclusionary languages. Well, can I end, because we're running out of time, by just asking you, because it was too much for a sitter. In one of your essays, you say, psychoanalysts never talk about what they hate about psychoanalysis. Uh, what do you hate about psychoanalysis? What I hate about psychoanalysis is, on the one hand, its potential omniscience, which can lead some of its practitioners to have a huge amount of inner superiority. So the omniscience I really hate. The other thing I hate is its essentialism and its naivety about essentialisms. So psychoanalysts have been more than willing to tell us the truth about ourselves. And I hadn't had enough of an ironized or tentative or provisional account of who we might be.
So the great and strong, so to speak, psychoanalytic theorists should be saying, not this is who we really are, they should be saying, this is what I want you to believe is true about human nature. This is what we're like at our best. What do you think? Adam Phillips, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much.